Uh, good morning to each and every one of you. So good to see you in the house of the Lord today. And my heart's desire is that you really leave here more encouraged and uh, for the Lord and praising the Lord as you leave here. Uh, this past weekend, I was asked to do a very short video clip for preparation for the church anniversary in August. And so the theme was basically, what are you thankful for? And so oh, that caught me off guard a little bit, and so I had to stop and think. And uh, there was just so many things. How do, how do you, where do you start? And uh, I think uh, I, I shared something, but then as I began to think more and reflect more uh, later in the day, uh, and I was working on the sermon, it became apparent that one thing I'm really thankful for is as I look out in this audience and look out in this congregation today, I am deeply moved and encouraged uh, to not only see individuals, but groups of individuals, groups of individuals from different ancestries, different uh, backgrounds of great variety of people. But I'm also very thankful and encouraged that I see people from different generations and stages of life. Uh, that isn't always so common in churches these days. Uh, I've uh, spoken in different churches. For example, I, I'll go to a university town and I'll see everybody has black hair. Everybody, you know, is, you know, energetic and everybody could be my grandchild, you know. And, and wow, you know, what an atmosphere that brings. But then we're, there's, there's very few adults. And then I'll go to churches where everybody looks like me. <laughs> everybody has gray hair or no hair. And, uh, and uh, you know, we have a lot to relate to, Right. And uh, so it seems like they're either one. But then again, I look out here at GBC, and I'm so thankful that we have people from all different generations. It is really an exciting time. It's a blessed time for us. And, and I think it's a blessed time because it gives us hope. It gives us hope. I like hope. Do you like hope? I like hope. I want to have lots of hope. And so the, the reason I have hope, because I think looking out in this congregation, it shows the length and the breadth and the width of humanity that God is reaching out to with the gospel and the transforming um, the, these people into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people say, your faith is dead. There's no, there's no God and all this kind of stuff. But I look out here and I say, uh-uh, I see God. I see God in you. I see God in you. I see God working in you. I see God changing your life. I'll be maybe a little bit slower than you want it to be, but he is out there. He is active, and he is working in us, and he's working in all kinds of people. It also gives me hope because it shows the reality of the power of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. The singular act by God, the singular act of love and mercy resulted in the forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and reconciliation with God. Wow! Man, one act was able to do all of that and so much more. This, uh, the impact of God's uh, merciful act and gracious act of sending his son to die on the cross is recorded for us in such places as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. And it says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself, through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, meaning Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Something that had to be done, and it was done because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is also given to us very clearly in such passages as Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Oh, what an awesome thing that God is doing. And God is reaching out to not just one generation, he's reaching out to many generations, to all of us that are represented here in this room. But it also, it gives me hope for the future. Why? Because it shows that faith being passed on from, generation, from one generation to the next. So often I hear people say, oh, it's so sad. You're a Christian? Yes. Oh, that's so sad. Because people are saying it's their father's generation. It was their grandfather's generation. But there is no mention that it is their faith. It's the faith of their generation. You see? And so sometimes people lose the the feeling. They lose that connection. They don't understand that it is important that the faith pass from one generation to the next. But as I look out here, and I see the mix of people here, as I look at the kids screaming, yelling, biting, and scratching upstairs, I am excited. Because why? Because the faith is being passed on from one generation to the next. But this comes with this intergenerational business, comes some very important responsibilities and questions. Like, for example, what? How can we make the best of what God has blessed us with in this mix of generations? Would you agree? It's not easy, right? But how can we make the best of it? How can we take advantage of what God has assembled here at Grace Baptist Church? How can we move forward and fulfill God's sovereign plans and purposes together? Together. Not separately, but together. What commitments and sacrifices will we have to make together? You see, all of those kinds of questions come into play when we look at the kind of church that God is assembling here at GBC. A blessing to be sure, but oh, what a challenge it is. And so that's why God's word is so important to us. The answers that God gives us in his holy word are applicable to every parent and to every child. It is applicable to every person, from the youngest to the oldest. It is, in, it, is as, it is significant to every person, whether they are across the street or they are across the room. It doesn't matter, because we're in this together. And so we want to know, how can we make the best of living together in an intergenerational community for Christ? And so let's turn ourselves and our attentions to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. This is where our study has taken us. And when we arrive at chapter 5, we realize that this is about 20 plus years since King Nebuchadnezzar had passed on. There's, There's some rough estimates here. 
roughly about that amount of time has passed by. Nebuchadnezzar has died. He's passed off the scene. There's a ser- been a series of kings, uh, rather poor kings, in between. And then finally some stability comes, and Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, ascends the throne. And he ascends the throne as the co-regent of Babylon. He shares his rule with his father, Nabonidus. And so he's there, he's enjoying all of the perks and privileges of being the king of Babylon. But things aren't going so well for Babylon, because right outside the gates are the armies of the Medes and the Persians. They have amassed just outside the bronze doors. They have besieged the city. They are ready to attack. They are ready to conquer the mighty Babylon. And so this is where we pick up the story. Now, I want to do something a little bit different today, and I hope you'll be patient with us. I'd like to take us through the whole chapter, all 30 verses, but I'm going to ask you to follow along and read the verses, but I'll divide them up for you in bite-sized amounts, okay? So hopefully you can follow along. If you have a Bible in your hand, follow along. If you have a Bible on your handphone or your computer, follow along. If you don't have neither, just look at the screen, okay? And we'll get it to you somehow, some way, all right? So where does our story begin? Our story begins with an act of defiance. There is defiance going on here. And this is found in verses 1 to 4. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of a thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father or forefather, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, wood and stone. And what do you notice here? It's pretty obvious in verse 1 that you see a spirit of indulgence, a spirit of indulgence prevailing. This is really amazing when you think about it. Right outside your gate, there's this army of bloodthirsty soldiers that want to just come in there and destroy you. And what are you doing? Eat, drink, and be merry, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But that's what's going on. And so, yet, um, what, what was uh, Belshazzar and the people of Babylon trusting in? Well, historians tell us that Babylon was surrounded by walls that were over nine meters high. It was, had a hundred guard towers. For its day and time, it was impregnable, okay? The Medes and the Persians did not have C4. They didn't have artilleries. They didn't have tanks and all of this fancy stuff. And so this city really looked impregnable, and the people inside of it thought it was impregnable. Nobody could take us. Food, water, hey, the river Euphrates ran right through the middle of it. Food, we got enough stored up for 20 years. If the Medes and the Persians want to sit out there for 20 years, more power to them. But in the meantime, we're going to enjoy ourselves on the inside. There was this spirit of, of irreverence also. I mean, think about this. He takes the golden vessels that were reserved for the worship of God in the temple of Jerusalem, and they decided to defile them by drinking wine and toasting their idols. Isn't that an affront to God? 
But that's exactly what they had going. Indulgence and irreverence. Belshazzar showed no recognition of the gravity of the situation or reverence for God himself. That is ultimately clear. He was like Belshazzar was shaking his fist and says, bring it on. I don't care who you are. I fear no man. I fear no God. I am Belshazzar. I am of Babylon. That's the atmosphere that was prevailing at that time. A defiant spirit. And then there was a a declaration from the Lord. And this is found in verses 5 through 29. So you can follow along there in the verses that come up. This message in verses 5, uh, starting with verse 5 through 7, you sense a spirit of dread coming, coming upon the king. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to them, Any man who can read this inscription, explain its interpretation to me, shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around the neck and have authority as third ruler of the kingdom, it says. There's a sense of dread that came over him. His blood just drained from his head, and he began to shake, as it were. And then the sense of panic began to set in. Then all the king's wise men came, but they, and starting with verse 8, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then the, Bel, the king, Belshazzar, was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed, it says in the scriptures. The sense of panic began to overcome him. Nobody could understand the meaning and the interpretation of this message that was being written by a hand on the wall, okay? This is where we get the expression, the writing is on the wall, okay? Some of you are familiar with that statement. The message is clear. It is coming through. But then, in the midst of all this, comes a, sense, a message of hope, a sense of hope. And it comes through the queen mother of all people. And if you look, starting with verse 10. The queen entered the banquet hall because the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom a spirit of the holy gods and in the days of her father or grandfather, illumination, insight, and wisdom like wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father or your forefather or your grandfather, your father, the king, appointed him chief and the magicians, uh, conjurers, uh, chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans and diviners. It says uh, in verse 11. And so and then in verse 12, this was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigmas and solving difficult problems were found in Daniel whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, that he will declare the interpretation. And so the, the king himself was there perplexed. He's, he's freaking out, if you will. He's panicking. His mother, uh, his queen, the queen mother walks in and says, Now remember, there's this man named Daniel. And Daniel is, is about 80 plus years old at this time. 
Now, why didn't Belshazzar remember Daniel? No idea. He, maybe he was a busy man, too busy partying, too busy holding these thousand people banquets. I'm not sure. But what happened? Somehow he forgot about Daniel, and he had to be reminded. So the message comes on the wall. There's now hope that someone can interpret it. And now comes the meaning in verses 13 through 29. 13 through 29. The meaning is given to King Belshazzar. Belshazzar, true to form, decides to do what Nebuchadnezzar did. And he says, look, I'm going to offer this man a reward if he can interpret this thing. And it's going to be a pile. It's like winning the lottery, okay? It's like winning Super Bowl, okay? It's, it's like, you, you, you know, the price of, you bought gold low and it went super high. He, he's, this is what it's like. And so in verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. Verse 16. But I personally have heard about you and that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple, wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. So he offers him plenty of rewards. Now, as you look at this, you would say, oh, goody. Jump for joy. One more necklace of gold. <laughs> I'm thinking that's what Daniel say. Daniel has all the gold he could handle from Nebuchadnezzar. You know, what do I need? Another gold necklace. You know, another title. More work. You know, he says, I'm 80 years old. I don't need all that. But he is so gracious. Look at his response. He meets the king with a rebuke. Mild one, but very diplomatic. Verse 17. Okay, and he says, then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grant, I mean, uh, we'll stop there. So what happens is he, he does, uh, Daniel responds with this rebuke, and he, he starts off by uh, giving this uh, uh, kindly rejection of the rewards, but says, I'm going to do it for you anyway, all right? And then in verse 19, 18, he says, O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language ref- feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled, it says in that verse. What was he doing there? He was examining Nebuchadnezzar's encounter with God. And in this encounter, in this encounter between God and his grandfather, there was the rise of Nebuchadnezzar, but there was also the fall of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of a beast 
and his dwelling place was that with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. It was important for Daniel to go back to this because Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had so much in common, you see? And Daniel knew it, and Daniel saw the, interp- saw the, the statement, and he knew exactly how this was all going to play out. And so he had to recount, he had to re-examine Nebuchadnezzar's encounter with God. Then in verse 22, he starts on uh, explaining Belshazzar's encounter with God. And he says to him, yet you his son, or grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, it says. And then in verse 23, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, And they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life and breath, and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Wow. Amazing. What was unfolded to Shazar was first his failure because he had copied the foot, he had followed in the footsteps of his grandfather and he had succumbed to pride, unhealthy pride, in verse 22. He succumbed to praise of his idols, of worshiping his idols. And then he followed this by the punishment that was meted out by God in verses 25 through 29. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Many, many, tekel, haparsin. Uh, this is the interpretation of the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians, it says. Amazing, amazing. All of this followed in rapid fashion. All of this followed in rapid fashion. The message, the meaning, all unveiled to Belshazzar. But you know what's amazing is that it's like it just went over Belshazzar's head. It's like Belshazzar was listening to his iPod or something, and he wasn't listening to a single word that Daniel had just said. Because look at verse 29. He says, Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning that he now had authority as a third ruler of the kingdom. You see? It's just like life goes on. You know? It just was, it didn't register on Belshazzar's radar. He didn't get it. You see? Although God was very specific, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. Belshazzar's days were up, and he was about to die, and his empire would be divided and given up to the Medes and the Persians. And that's what follows in the verses 30 to 31, because the last act of this story is the demise of Belshazzar and Babylon. The death of Belshazzar is recorded for us in verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. And then so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now, 
we see the death and we see the downfall of Babylon. Some people like to say, now how did that happen? You know, nine meter high walls and 100 towers, food for 20 years. How could that possibly happen? Remember the river Euphrates went through the middle of the city? That's where they got their water? The Medes and the Persians were sharp. They had advanced degrees in engineering. So what they did was they diverted the river outside the walls of Babylon. The river dried up. And you know what it became? A highway to hell. As the troops of the Medes and the Persians went through the riverbed and up into the city. They never had to break the walls or hit the gates. They just walked right in. And they conquered the city of Babylon. You see, nothing is impregnable. Nothing man-made is impregnable. It can be overcome. And that's how they did it. And so when you see this story, you hear this story, you see the sovereignty of rule of God. God predicted that Babylon would fall, and it did. And you saw that God was supreme, and he's over individuals and nations. This is clearly taught throughout the book of Daniel. However, mixed inside of this greater theme are still lessons that you and I can learn. How do we live in light of the sovereignty of God? Are there things that we are responsible for? Are there things that we can do? Are there important and significant things that we ought to pay attention to? And there are. And I would conclude that these are what we call life lessons. There's three life lessons, okay? Three life lessons. The first life lesson is this. Each generation should learn from the successes and failures of preceding generations or past generations. Look at verse 22. This was such a sad commentary. In verse 22, Yet you, meaning Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, get this, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. He knew the story of his grandfather. He knew the failure of his grandfather. And yet he proceeded to follow in the very same footsteps as his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, denying the sovereignty of God and the rule of God. And so he did not do it. Why did he do it? The charge was made. It was because of his pride. Because of his pride. Now, we ought to learn something very significant here. Pride is not limited to one generation. It is not exclusive to one generation. If I can put it this way, just like the scourge of dengue fever can attack anyone, The scourge of unhealthy pride can affect any generation, any generation. Look at uh, um, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Jesus was speaking about the heart of man. Maybe perhaps not like it is for everyone, but generally. In Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 21, Jesus said this. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. 
All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You see, if we're sitting here nice and cozy, if we're sitting here nice and confident, feeling that pride is not, can, can never affect us, Jesus said, this can reside in anyone's heart. This can reside in anyone's heart. There needs to be counterbalanced the idea that God is above all and over all, not us. Psalms 33, 10 through 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. We need to turn from our pride, our unhealthy pride, quickly before it is too late. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1. A man who hardens his neck, or is prideful, after much reproof, will suddenly be broken and beyond remedy. There is a point, people, where our pride proceeds so far, is so embedded and so entrenched in our spirit, in our character, that we are fouled and we are broken. We need to be careful about that line. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And so pride becomes an issue. It is important that every generation teach the other generation and every generation learn from the other generation. This is so important that we teach and learn one another as we go about life. That was the first life lesson. The second life lesson. Each generation must decide whom it will worship and glorify. This is found back in uh, Daniel chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. After Daniel reveals the problem of pride with uh, Belshazzar, he turns his attention to verse 23. But you exalted yourself against the Lord of heavens, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand your, uh, are your life and breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. He had turned his back on Almighty God. There abides a strong streak in each of us to ignore God, to, soup, soup, to substitute other deities and priorities in our lives. Can we agree with that? Yes. It's easy for us to slip into that mode. As I've uh, observed life, and I guess uh, after, <laughs> after my birthday, I realized I, 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 I've accumulated a number of years. I've, I've realized that Every generation seems to have their own idols, okay? I won't say which generation has what, but every generation seems to have their own little idol that they set up. Some of the idols that I've noticed are naturalism, rationalism, materialism, existentialism, you got it, narcissism, and of course, my all-time favorite, science and technology, and so on and so forth. Every generation has their idols. They may not admit it. They may not be willing to confess it. But they do have their idols. And every generation, every generation has to pick who it will worship and who it will follow. 
this fact was probably embedded in my brain, tattooed on my brain when I started having children. And we had no idea God was going to give us so many children, okay? Um, but God is sovereign, you know. God is good. God is good all the time and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, we've happily, you know, took in our segment children. And so what happened was um, one day I was sitting and reflecting, and I says, I had a nightmare. You know what the nightmare was? The nightmare was that one or more of my children would not choose to worship or follow God. I said, oh, my. You know, just, you know just a, a, my, my, the blood just drained from my head. And I got very cold all of a sudden, very sobering, very sobering, that one or more of my children may not choose to follow God. And so, you know, that got me fired up. And I just said, we got to read more Bible in the house. We got to pray more together. You know, we got to go to church more, even if it's not our church. Let's go, you know. You know, did all the things that a panicking parent ought to do, right? And so, finally, the Lord led some people in my life, and they took me aside, and I shared this nightmare with them. And they said, Arnold, it's their choice. It's their choice. You cannot accept Christ for them. They have to accept Christ. Boy, we continued to pray. We continued to do everything we could for our children, but with a much different perspective. It's their choice. And we did everything in our human power to see that they knew how to know Christ, that they knew about Christ, but it's their choice. Every generation has to choose if they will follow God, if they will worship him or follow the other idols and gods, and bear the consequences. That's the second one. The third life lesson is this. Each generation must live in light of what God has revealed. This is in verse 25 through 28. As you know, the message was clear. The handwriting was on the wall. And so basically the message in some total was this, is that God had evaluated Belshazzar. And God had determined that your time is up, okay? This is it for you. And then God had w- considered and weighed the, the quality of the empire, how it lived and how it, uh, how it, it, it behaved. And it said, you had been found waiting. You had been found deficient. And then God determined that it was time that it was ending and that it was time that you would be divided up and given over to the Medes and the Persians. It was a fulfillment of the Prophecy that was made to Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel way back in the early chapters. It was being fulfilled. Now, what's the hidden message in this? The hidden message is that all of us will be held accountable by God. God is just not sitting up in heaven with his arms crossed, reading the straight times or, you know, whatever it is. He's not sitting there looking at CNN news. But God is actively processing and weighing and deciding what to do with each one of these empires in each of our lives. We will be held accountable whether we are saved or we are unsaved, whether we belong to God or we don't. Romans chapter 14, verse 12, if we belong to God, listen to this. So then each one of us, speaking of Christians, speaking of those who know Christ as their Savior, will give an account of himself to God. 
And then if we don't belong to God, we don't escape. We also will stand before God and give an account. First Peter chapter four, verse five. And when he's speaking about those who do not know God and who perform all kinds of abominable acts, verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, sometimes it goes under the radar. It, it disappears from the, the mind and heart of people that they will someday stand before God and give an account for this life that we have lived. And so as a result, we just live it any way we want to. But the scripture is clear. We will stand before God and give an account. When will that be? Well, that's up to God because our days are numbered by him. It's determined by him. In James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, it says this. It says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to, to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. You see, our days are determined by God. What will happen and how many there are. And so God is actively comparing us. He, is, he has not forgotten in Galatians chapter 6 that a man reaps what he sows. You see, but somehow... Each generation somehow forgets that. Each generation sort of feels like, hey, I'm okay, man. Are you okay? You know, you do what you want to do. As long as you don't mess with me, I don't mess with you. You know, I don't make any judgments of you. You don't make any judgments of me. But ultimately, we stand before God, and we have to live accordingly. God has revealed that he will actively make a decision about us. He will make a determination. And every generation must choose to live light in fact of that very thing that we will be held accountable. Now, what does this mean then for all of us here? There's two applications. There's an application for us individually, okay? How can you and I help this generation and the next live in light of the fact they will be held accountable to God, by God? How can you and I help this generation and the next choose to worship God? How can you and I teach and learn from this generation and the next to walk in the way of the Lord? Well, two things I would suggest. One of them is that we pay attention to our motivations. Have good motivations. What might a good motivation be? Turn to Daniel chapter 7, I mean uh, Psalms, verse 71. Verse 71. I was struck by this, and I even have this written on and on a sticky note on the wall in my office at home. And I put this up because it just, it's such a great verse. It's such a great motivational verse. Psalms chapter 71, verse 18. And it says this, And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to all who are to come. Notice the focus there. The focus is, Lord, please, let me live long enough so that I can declare your strength to this present generation and your power to all generations to come. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? 
You know, you've been looking for something to get up for each morning. You've been looking to get up and say to yourself, what, a, what can I do that's noteworthy? What can I do that is significant? What can I wake up to do something that would be really meaningful? This would be one. Oh, Lord, help me to live long enough that I would be able to declare your strength and power to the people now and to the people to come. And then, number two, determine in your heart to teach the way of God by living it. Every day of your life. Every day of your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, sometimes I think we make this parenting business, you know, more complicated than God meant it to be. And what he says is believe it and then live it. Okay? That's all he's asking us to do. You know, we complicate it with all kinds of this, all this kind of, you know, uh, 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 psychological mumbo jumbo and all this kind of, you got to do this, you got to do that. He says, look, believe what God says and then live what God says in front of your children. You see, this is how we will help this generation and the next generation to make the right decisions about the questions we have asked. How does this affect us as a church? As a community of believers, how does this affect us? Well, one word to the people of Grace Baptist Church. May the older generation not give up on the younger generation, and may the younger generation not give up on the older generation. (laughs) Don't give up on each other. You know, I, I see the look on some of your faces. You know, it could be young people. It could be the older people. You know, you, your face is all contorted. You want to pull out your hair. If you're too old to have any hair, you're, you're pulling something out, you know. And, and, and you're saying to yourself, I can't get through to these guys. I can't understand these people. Man, don't they see it? Don't they understand? Don't they know I know better than they do? So on and so forth. And it goes back and forth. And you just want to wash your hands of it. So when you go down to the canteen later, all the people with white hair are sitting at one table. All the people with black hair or some hair, they're all sitting at another table. The kids don't care. They're just running wild. You see? Because we've somehow given up on each other. We've given up on each other. We don't want to we we, we interact with each other because it's too hard. But when you look at these things that God has been teaching us for the gener- one, each generation to teach and learn from each other, then this is really understandable here. This becomes possible. And we can do this how? With Number one, with attitudes, proper attitude. And what should our attitude be? How can one generation relate to another generation and not lose their cool and, and not lose their sanctification along the way? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. I'm sorry, 5 to 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
How is one generation going to relate to another? It's with an attitude of servanthood and an attitude of humility. No one generation, no one generation holds all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge. It doesn't. Okay? And we need one another. Have this attitude, one of servanthood and humility, acts of love and acts of submission. That's how they can get across to each other. How, are we, how else are we going to do that? By actions, by our actions. What actions are we talking about? Well, there's a very interesting teaching that Paul put into his writings. Forty times he used the word one another, the, word, the Greek word alalon. And 40 times he used this verse scattered throughout his writings. And he, what he was doing is he was teaching us how to live cross-generationally and otherwise. He was teaching us, how are you going to make this happen? How are you going to make this work? And he's, these one another's appear 40 times throughout the Bible. Now, we're not going to go through all 40 of them. We can't. But here's a sampling of them. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Just write it down in your note. You can go back and read it later. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Tells us to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Whoa! Wow! And then, if you drop down to verse 16 of Romans chapter 12. Be of the same mind towards one another. Then if you jump over to Romans 13, verse 8. Love one another. And then go further to Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another. Verse 14, be able to admonish one another. And then jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. Care for one another. Do you get the point? If we live out the one another passages in our life, we can survive the other generation, okay? We can work with the other generation. We can relate to the other generation. But if our attitude is bad, it doesn't, isn't governed by humility and servanthood. If our actions are not right, meaning that we're not loving or caring for one another, it's not going to work. Now, this has deep ramifications for us. You know, some people said, you know, this building business is kind of exciting, but not so exciting, you know. And all that. You're right. You see, the minute we build a building, some church down the block is going to build a bigger one, a better one, and a fancier one. The building is not the important thing. It's the people in the building and what happens between those people in the, inside the building that really counts. You see? And God says... Be, live in an intergenerational kind of environment. And when you follow the one another passages and your attitude is filled with servanthood and humility, you're going to make this thing work. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a place that even you want to be a part of, that you want to be. You may not even want to go home because it's so cool here at the church. You see? 
That's the implications. So God wants every generation to teach and learn from each other. God wants every generation to choose to worship and follow him. God wants every generation to live knowing that they will be held accountable to God. God is sovereign. So live like it. Make him the sovereign Lord of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done and all that you are doing. Sometimes, Lord, it escapes us because you are so quiet at the way you go about things. But, Father, the things that you do are so good. Let us, Father, become a part of that. Let us join your army. Let us become your people. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for the example that Daniel set before us. And that, Father, your word exhorts us to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.